The Exchange Podcast is brought to you in part by your university system, including Granite State College, Keene State College, Plymouth State University, and the University of New Hampshire. Imagine what you can accomplish here. From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Laura Canoy, and this is The Exchange. Today in The Exchange, we venture above treeline and into the world of winter hiking with New Hampshire author Ty Gagne. He has a new book out called The Last Traverse, Tragedy and Resilience in the Winter Whites. At one level, the book is about two friends who set out on a winter hike that goes awry, but it's also about the decisions they made, the risks they took, the unique weather of the Whites, and the team of rescuers who put their own lives in danger to reach them. Author Ty Gagne is CEO of Primax, which helps local governments assess risk. He's also a certified wilderness first responder. His last book was Where You'll Find Me, Risk, Decisions, and the Last Climb of Kate Matrasova. His essay, Footprints in the Snow, Lead to an Emotional Rescue, first published in the AMC's journal, is on our website today at nhpr.org slash exchange. And Ty Gagne, welcome back to The Exchange. It's really great to have you. Good morning, Laura. It's good to be with you again. Thank you. And I want to remind listeners, you can join us. If you have hiking experiences that showed you the fine line between adventure and disaster, you can join us. Our email is exchange at nhpr.org. Once again, exchange at nhpr.org. And our phone number is one 800 So, Ty, there are lots of rescue stories in the White Mountains. We see them in the newspapers, you know, usually on a Monday morning after a busy weekend. Most of them end well. Sometimes they end tragically. What drew you to this particular story, Ty? Why did you think it was so important to tell? Well, I was drawn to this story really based on a a personal experience I had on Franconia Ridge um, eight days prior to uh, James Osborne and Fred Fredrickson's accident uh, on the same ridge line. And as I was doing uh, research for the first book, um, and I was going out and talking with groups about um, Kate Matrasova's accident and the stories of the rescuers, um, I, I received the fishing game report that covered their accident because when I went up on the ridge line, I made a series of decisions that day that I frankly, I was just fortunate to untangle from. And eight days later, this accident happens, and I'm still in this period of of self reflection um, about my own decision making. And it it just it stayed with me for you know what's been over a decade now, and that's really what led to the to the book. So the idea that you had been in that same place and you had made some decisions that were also not advisable, if I could put it that way. Ty, give us a little bit more there, please. Sure. So I was invited to go to a winter traverse of the Franconia Ridge uh, in early February 2008 with two people um, who I I didn't know, let alone hadn't hiked with before. And my fitness level that winter, I didn't have my hiking legs. I wasn't doing a lot of winter hiking. And, and so my fitness really wasn't aligned with the objective, which was this nine plus mile loop of uh, the ridge and Mount Lafayette, Lincoln, and Haystack, but I I went, uh, and the weather conditions were, they were not great. Uh, We call them full, so very low visibility, high winds, and on multiple, at multiple points on that hike, I wanted to turn around, and I just didn't speak up, and I didn't speak up um, because I felt like I was a guest, uh, 
um, you know, and I didn't want to be marginalized or perceived as being weak. It, it was really an ego-based decision that, that kept me there. So, um, you know, I hit, I eventually hit the wall. You know, I, I wasn't hydrating. We call it self-care. I wasn't really taking on food and got up on the ridgeline in really, really high winds and which is exhausting and just really had to put one foot in front of the other to get through it uh, and learn really valuable lessons from it. Yeah, and made it. And, and it sounds like that's what drew you to this story is that your recognition, Ty, that you could have been these men. You might not have made it down. Right. And I think the other, the other piece of this is that, you know, I potentially compromised the safety and well-being of the two companions I was with. And so it, it wasn't just my decisions were affecting me. They were potentially affecting the two people that I had joined that day. Well, and it's so interesting, and we'll get into this later. I mean, your profession, as I said in the opening, is helping you know municipalities and schools assess risk. So it's interesting to sort of take that from the professional to the personal. Um, but let's talk about the hike itself for a moment, just to place this for listeners. So Franconia Ridge, a lot of listeners will know this, but even for those who don't know it, they've probably seen it, Ty. So where is it? What does it look like? So as you're entering into Franconia Notch, um, if you're able to look up and um, high up and to the right, you'll see the highest peak, which is Mount Lafayette, over 5,000 feet. Uh, and the ridge uh, really works its way. So that's what you're probably going to see first. But as you get deeper into Franconia Notch, um, that expansive ridge line, which is a little, you know, it's about 1.6, 1.7 miles, begins to open up. And it's just incredibly majestic i mean it's and it just draws you in it's just a beautiful particularly when they're snow-capped so even if you've never been up there yourself you've probably seen it if you've driven through the notch and what draws people to this tie i myself full disclosure been up there a couple times not in the winter um and it is pretty incredible for me in the winter just speaking for myself um i, I think just being up above tree line in the wintertime is just a completely different feel than, than the other three seasons. And, you know, I, I put it to, you, you have to be fully present when you're there. You, you have, your situational awareness has to be really high, paying attention to everything you're doing, which really creates this actually really nice disconnect from everything else you're leaving uh, behind you on the trail. And it's, it's challenging and it's it's rewarding and, and it's beautiful, but it's also unpredictable. Well, and before we get into all the unpredictable weather that these men faced and the decisions that they made, let's just talk about who they were, um, these two hikers, their level of skill in the outdoors. Um, you know, these were lovely people who a lot of people cared about. Yeah, they, they really were. Um, Fred Fredrickson, um, and James Osborne, they worked, uh, lived in New Hampshire, um, both worked for what at the time Concord coach and, uh, both were really beloved drivers, um, of, of the bus and really, really well liked within the, or within the company, um, just known as very approachable, friendly, engaging people. Uh, and they were part of this, uh, small group from within the company of hikers. Um, very collegial, 
they're just really close friendships and they would just go out regularly on days off and and um, hike uh, most of which was in the white mountains and james osborne was the less experienced hiker fred was the more experienced talk about that relationship tie and how that affects some of the decisions that were made along the way sure um well fred had for extensive four season experience and that was well known um by anyone around him he was just known as a really passionate outdoorsman he was in exceptional physical condition very well skilled um almost a perfectionist in terms of continuously testing new gear and upgrading it and, and reading about it. Uh, James was an, was an avid three season hiker. Um, he had done, you know, over, I think he was at 37 or 38 peaks at the time of the accident. And wow. he really was, yeah. And Fred had done the hundred highest peaks in New England, uh, done a lot of hiking in, in Maine on Katahdin and, and elsewhere. And, you know, James, um, really wanted to move into the fourth season uh, and, and learn about winter hiking. He saw the enthusiasm that Fred brought about that, and it was just a very enticing thought for him uh, to, to go after it. And so what happens, and you mentioned this with your own story, Ty, what happens when you have a group, in this case just two people, where there is sort of a, a hierarchy of, okay, he has more experience than me? Well, th you, this goes to you know, heuristics, decision-making, decision bias kinds of issues. And what we call this, and this relates whether we're in the mountains or we're down at sea level, but when you, when you have a perceived expert uh, in a group or somebody senior or seems to have the authority, there can be this dynamic that's created where we really just, we leave the decision-making to that person. And the one thing I want to just make really clear is that's Fred was not like a power authority kind of person. You know, he, he really viewed his friends and his hiking partners as equals. And that's really not what this was about. But as James will, will tell you is that he, you know, he was the passenger on hikes. He, he would leave the decision-making and the planning to those that, that he went with. And he's, he's just very open about that, which I think speaks a lot to his character. Um, but again, if we start to see things that are going wrong, um, we may not speak up because we feel that we have less tenure or experience or expertise, uh, or that if we do speak up, um, that we might be marginalized or isolated uh, or criticized. And so we don't, we don't say anything. And I, you know, I don't think that's the dynamic at play with, with Fred and James, but there was definitely a default position of leaving the, the planning and the decision making to to Fred. And you interviewed um, James Osborne for this book, which I'm sure was very painful for him. Um, you know, I mean, spoiler alert, you say right up front in the book in the first two or three pages that James made it and Fred did not. Why did James say he wanted to participate? He He really wanted to he really wanted to evolve and expand his, his skills and move into just expand his hiking season. No, I um, mean, participate in this oh, book. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, and, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, well, early on after the accident and as James was going through his recovery, he worked 
very closely with uh, Fish and Game. Uh, Todd Bogardis, who's in the book, he was the incident commander um, of the rescue and would go out and, and talk with hiking groups about his experience and what he learned from it. And um, again, which I just really think goes back to his, his character and really took ownership of it. And, and I knew that was happening. So when I approached him, um, although it was probably years later since he had done his last talk, you know, I, I introduced myself, told them who I was and, and what I was hoping to do. And, you know, would he be willing to sit down with me? And he was. Did he see it as an opportunity to help other people avoid, you know, similar decision-making traps? He, he did. He really saw value in transparency that he learned really valuable lessons from this and, and really was willing to participate in an effort that was really focused on helping other hikers or really any of us that are, are making decisions um, in staying out of harm's way and being safe. Again, today in The Exchange, we're talking with New Hampshire author Ty Gagne. His new book is called The Last Traverse, Tragedy and Resilience in the Winter Whites. As he's describing, it's about two friends who set out on a winter hike that goes awry. One man makes it, the other does not. But it also looks at the incredible rescue effort that was put into place to get these gentlemen off the mountain and the decisions that they made, um, the unique weather of the whites and how this all transpired. Listeners, join us. We'd love to hear from you, whether you are a winter hiker or not. 1-800-892-6477. Email exchange at nhpr.org. And uh, Ty, we got an email from Lynn in Sanbornton, who says, I value the risk assessment lessons. I'm highly curious each time you take me there about how the search people are people too, and how they organize. I latch on to wanting to know what gear everyone has had on them, the lost and the searchers. I learned a lot about helicopters and their pilots in the last traverse. Most of all though, Lynn says, there's the loss you make us feel. We can emotionally ask, did it have to be this way? And Lynn wants to know, Ty, how hard was it to be writing the a life is gone parts of the book? Are you at your writing desk with tears running down your face? Lynn, thank you for writing into us today. Yeah, I, re I really appreciate that question. Thank you, Lynn. Um, you know, I, as I did with the first book and with this book, I, I just, I approached it non-judgmentally and with empathy because, you know, I had a, I had an experience in the mountains that could have gone in the wrong direction. And, and I didn't, you know, this wasn't kind of storming in with a, with a notepad and a pen saying, you know, I have a series of questions. You know, I, I reached out to James, um, and as, I, as I already mentioned, and when I talked with James, James actually scheduled time for me to sit down with he and Bet, um, which was Fred, Fred's ex-wife, um, right. who remained very, very close to him. And it was just a really, um, it was a really moving experience. And it was, I, I recognized the sacred nature of of this whole process and um, just tried to keep communication very open and with the understanding of what I was hoping to achieve with the book. And, you know, just like James, Bet and, and her sons 
contributed greatly to to the story, and I'm I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, Lynn, thank you and for I, writing I, I, in. I, yeah, go ahead. No, go I also just recognize that, that it's not a, it's as as difficult as this topic is. It's it's not about me. I can't make it about me. It's about telling the story and trying to do so in a way that's um, helps people recognize that that you know there are we're all human and we see these things happen and we read about them in the paper and see them on the news, but there are people beyond that incident that are deeply impacted by these, these events. Yeah. And it's easy to see those headlines that you mentioned. And as you said a moment ago, you know, be judgy or be critical or say, how could they, but you are trying to offer a fuller portrait um, of these people and the decisions that they make. And, you know, we've all made bad decisions in the great outdoors. It's just that most of us, make it down because you know we're lucky yeah i agree I, i've been i've talked to countless numbers of people over the past i think five years since i started talking about accidents in the white mountains from a risk management perspective and how that those incidents what we can learn from those to help us better manage risk and make decisions just on a day-to-day -day basis and um you know I, I just i think it they're important parallels a lot of what goes on up there um, is similar to the to the types of dynamics that affect risk and decisions here. It's just, well, it may manifest itself differently, but it's very similar. Listeners, what are you hoping to learn from this book or from this story, again, of hikers who go into the winter whites with a fair bit of experience and a fair bit of gear, but a series of decisions leads to tragedy? Again, we'll take your questions and comments at 1-800-892-6477, email exchange at nhpr.org. Uh, Justin is calling in from Epping, Ty. Hi, Justin. Thanks for calling into the exchange today. Hi, thanks. Go ahead, Justin. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, to share quickly, I've, um, as an avid climber, I had an experience out in Washington State with some friends, um, one of whom was uh, the least experienced of our group of three. And we were off climbing an objective and just kind of watching our friend um, have kind of a slow decline. And uh, we decided to back off of what our objective was. And we still ended up getting back to our base camp after midnight. And Wow. Uh, you kind of had like a almost mental emotional breakdown during that time. So had we not paid attention, had we not, you know, heated stories of people before us, um, it definitely could have gone bad. Definitely could have been us up there getting a rescue. Um, but rather we backed off and, you know, we got some food and rest and all that. And he felt better. We walked out and had a, a story to tell, but um, not one that was tragic. So really, wow. how hard was it? Us is big. Yeah. And Justin, you know, um, Ty studies this whole issue of group dynamics and how some people, you know, are regarded as leaders and others follow and then decision making can spiral down from there. How hard was it for you, Justin, to, as you put it so well, back off from the objective? Um, honestly, not that difficult, only because I've read so many stories of people before me. Um, yeah. And it's objective I still haven't reached to this day. And it's still like one of those lifetime goals. Um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful climb. Um, but in this case, it, it really was easy to kind of see like his uh, comfort level was just was coming down and um, as he was getting cold and tired and, and all the things yeah. that come with alpine climbing. Justin, it's great to hear from you. And Ty, in the book, one of the rescuers says, 
this is a common problem and Justin puts it so well, you know, whether to back off from the objective or not. And this person says to you, many hikers in the whites are, um, I think he puts it summit focused or summit obsessed. <laughs> How hard is it for people to back off from the objective? Yeah, I think it can be really hard. I, J Justin, thank you very much for your insights. I appreciate that. Um, it can be really difficult because if you think about the clo how close in proximity the White Mountains are to a large portion of the population on the Eastern Seaboard, it's it's really accessible. And in the in the case of Franconia Notch, it's right off the interstate. And so one of the these biases that we can find ourselves in when we're undertaking, whether it's going after a summit or something at work or what have you, is this this sunk cost where We've invested so much time, energy, and effort into this objective, i.e. I drove here for a long weekend to, to do a traverse or to get the summit, that we will, we will escalate our commitment toward that summit or that whatever that objective is because we've invested so much to get there. And you saw this play out on Everest in 96 and since then. Um, and you see it, it has played out in the White Mountains as well. It's, uh, it's, these are human factors that are, that are really found within all of us. Well, and people who plan to come up, you know, maybe they come up from a little further than Massachusetts, from New York or Connecticut. You know, people don't have unlimited flexibility and unlimited time off. I mean, this is their weekend and they're going to do it. So there you go. Right, Ty? Right. And, and especially right now with just that feeling of escape, um, I think it, it could potentially even fuel that, that dynamic more because it is, you know, there's so much uncertainty right now. There's so much anxiety and stress and, and the thought of just being out and being away and, and being in a high place is, um, it's really enticing for people. After a short break, we will talk more about that point you just made, the prospects for winter hiking this winter, given the heavy, heavy use that we saw in the whites this spring, summer, and fall. I also want to talk about unpredictable weather, Ty. That is a big part of this book. And listeners, we'd love to hear from you, your stories about winter hiking, those times when perhaps your own decision-making um, was not the best. We'll take your comments and questions by email, exchange at nhpr.org, or give us a call, 1-800-892-6477. More in a moment. This is The Exchange. Today, we're talking with author Ty Gagne about his new book, The Last Traverse, Tragedy and Resilience in the Winter Whites. It's about a winter hike that turned tragic, but also about decision-making, risk-taking, and the amazing efforts of New Hampshire's search and rescue teams. Exchange listeners, are you a winter hiker, or are you thinking about starting to hike this winter? Let us know. Our email, exchange at nhpr.org. Once again, exchange at nhpr.org. Use Facebook, tweet us, or call in 1-800-892-6477. So Ty, let's talk about winter weather in uh, specifically. Your book emphasizes the unpredictable weather of Franconia Notch in particular and says, well, everybody knows about Mount Washington's bad weather. People don't really appreciate the Notch's weather. Why not, Ty? Yeah, I, I think the presidential range in Mount Washington, and rightfully so, gets has the reputation of the world's worst weather, 
but if you look at um, if you look at Franconia Notch and the Franconia Ridge, which is roughly 20 miles to the to the west and a little bit south, it it runs in a very similar north-south orientation, and the notch itself, when the wind is is entering the notch either from the west or the northwest, it creates you know wind and weather dynamics that are very similar to what's found um, on Mount Washington. And you know one of the many reasons I wanted to write this is to really raise awareness um, about the fact that you know just because you go to the notch thinking it might be lower and less unpredictable than, than the presidential range, it, it really isn't. Also, there's the dynamic of, um, and I'm showing my colors as not a winter hiker. <laughs> I'm a three season hiker. The sun goes down pretty early in the winter, Ty, as you know, and especially, correct me if I'm wrong, in that area where these men hiked, right? Like once the sun goes behind Cannon Mountain, it gets really cold. Right, and, and in talking with, to that point, Alan Clark, who's the, the president of the Pemi Valley Search and Rescue Team, and Jim Neeland, who's the, the current um, team leader of the Fish and Game Advanced Search and Rescue Team, they talk about this dynamic where the sun just, it, people do not factor, always factor in how quickly the sun disappears behind Cannon Mountain to the west, and, and they find themselves in situations where they haven't built in that time, or maybe factored in what time is sunset and we know it's probably going to be earlier for us if we're you know ascending the slopes of um within franconia notch because it's it's going to disappear pretty quickly let's take another call ty this is bruce driving north on i-93 hi bruce you're on the air welcome hi good morning morning yeah i wanted to share a quote of a, a name that i think many many folks who know anything about mountaineering will know Brad Washburn, great climber, great map maker, and uh, uh, director emeritus of the Museum of Science in Boston, used to say that he was an old mountain climber because he turned back a lot. <laughs> that's and great, I, I Bruce. Think that's, it's such a great message. I, I think that anybody who likes climbing big mountains or winter mountains should take it as a point of pride that they do turn back. I think that would save a lot of lives. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to, if, if, if we have time, I'd love to share a story about my very first winter mountain trip. Uh, love it. Go ahead. Because a friend of mine wanted to share share his knowledge with me. So I was the neophyte. We were going up the backside of Mount Madison, um, up the, uh, I guess it's the Halker Ridge Trail. I'm trying to remember. And uh, the weather was terrible. Each time we'd pop up above the trees, the wind was blowing about 80 miles an hour. You couldn't walk standing up. Uh, you were walking like ducks across the ice. And eventually, I remember we um, just we finally got up above the, the last tree line uh, as you're coming across the ridge at the, the full summits on that trail. Uh, we we cr- kind of crawled over to each other and put our... Uh, the hoods of our jackets up so we could block the wind a little bit and my friend hollered at me bruce i think we need to reconsider our destination and i said yeah we just reached our destination so we turned around <laughs> and go back down that that was the good part the bad part was as as we got into the the nighttime part of our descent only about maybe a mile or so from from the parking lot uh my friend fell uh he didn't want to wear his uh his crampons the trail was very icy he went down and twisted his knee very badly. 
Oh, dear. And, uh, so what turned into the last you know, few minutes of sauntering along the trail turned into a major epic event uh, where uh, we, we were able to, to extract ourselves from the trail, but I had to fashion uh, crutches for him. I uh, loaded all of his gear on top of my pack. Uh, he broke a headlight, so we had uh, only one headlight between us. And uh, we, it took about two hours or so to, uh, uh, to, to creep along toward the trail. And then I uh, took him to the hospital in, um, uh, in, in Conway, and I couldn't warm up. Um, I ended up uh, stripping down to my, my lowest level layer of polypropylene long johns in the waiting room of the hospital. What I learned there was I had been so focused on helping my partner get to the car that I forgot to take care of myself. Oh, and you were hyperthermic. Yeah. Yes. Bruce, I'm so Thank glad you called. Thank you for sharing this story because so many things that you just told us are big topics in your book, Ty. I mean, um, the idea that Bruce was the neophyte, the shocking experience really, once you get up there, um, of the wind, hypothermia, that occupies you know a couple chapters in your book, how it's treated and how precarious it is. Bruce, thank you so much for calling. Um, could we talk about the wind first, Ty? I was surprised reading your book at just how incredible the winds were up there on that ridge. Sure. Um, well, as uh, James and Fred were making their way across the ridgeline, uh, they were about a half mile from Little Haystack and they were heading north toward Mount Lincoln. Um, you know, visibility was was pretty low. Uh, it was snowing lightly and, it, and the winds that were at their back really at like 13 miles an hour, it, you know, mild. And there was just this sudden um, extreme shift in the wind. Uh, that came out of the west northwest um, wind speeds ramped up from 13 to you know sustained 60 gusting to 70 miles an hour and it brought with it a snow squall and that wind picked up all of the freshly fallen snow and it it just was an overwhelming sensory um, experience for particularly for James well, that's the point where I would have turned down, but, and, and to that weather forecast, you know, there was a major weather event predicted for that day. One rescuer in your book says this storm was predicted a week in advance. As somebody with rescue experience yourself, Ty, and as somebody who professionally um, assesses risk, how should these forecasts by the Mount Washington Observatory be used by hikers and how often are they used in that way? You know, I think the hiking community and I, you know, a lot of credit to the Mount Washington Observatory for the amount of work they that they put into putting out a higher summits forecast and a forecast discussion. I think particularly over the past several years, hikers and outdoor recreationalists, skiers have leaned very heavily on that, uh, that report. And back in 2008, um, you know, the web is, you know, it's still evolving and cell phones were really still flip phone in nature. I think the first iPhone came out in uh, mid 2007, but so it just wasn't quite so easy to access, access that forecast as it is today. Um, and it, you know, James, again, very openly says he didn't check the observatory forecast. You know, I can't 
know for sure if Fred did. Um, but yeah, it was forecasted. And but I think it was just in this case a, a really unfortunate and tragic miscalculation of the timing um, and the severity of the weather event. I also want to ask you, Ty, about planning and packing. And you know, our caller Bruce mentioned the crampons, um, without going into all the stuff they brought, because that would take, you know, 20 minutes right there. What is it that they didn't bring? And this is something that, you know, the hiking community has been focusing on for a long time. Bring all the stuff, even if you end up just carrying it. What is it that they didn't bring that might have made a difference? Well, and I'll, you know, I'll preface this by saying that what I'm going to say is is really what was generated out of the Fish and Game Report and, and in my in-depth and ongoing conversations with James. You know, I think one of the pieces that was missing here, and James is very open about this, is uh, that it, you know, neither had a sleeping bag or what we would call a bivy bag, which is much like a tarp um, or, or what you would call a tent fly. Um, they didn't, uh, their fluids froze and their food froze quite quickly just because of the extreme temperatures. And, and so there was just a, there was an absence of insulation tools that can be used to keep your drinks, you know, from, from getting frozen and your food from just becoming, you know, impossible to eat because it's just solid. I would, you I know, I'd say those are pretty key. Yeah. So keeping food and water not frozen and a sleeping bag. And yet, Ty, I wonder, you know, you don't want to get into the trap of saying, gee, if they just brought X, they would have both survived. You know what I mean? Um, you know, there were a number of forces that, that hit these gentlemen that ended up creating a tragedy for Fred. So, you know, you want to tell people, bring all this, but you don't want to say, yeah, if you guys just brought a sleeping bag, all would be well. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a tricky line. Yeah, I, I would refer people to the Hike Safe website on New Hampshire Fishing Game, which gives you the 10 essentials. And then there's, and I also include it in the index of the book uh, that shows if you're, here are the 10 essentials for any hike, but then if you're going to expand into winter and do other kinds of activities, there, there are additional lists there. Uh, and that was done in, in collaboration with Fishing Game and the White Mountain National Forest. Got a lot of emails here, Ty, of listeners really relating to this idea that Bruce, our caller, said, you know, an old winter hiker is a hiker who's turned back uh, a lot. Chaley emails, I've been noticing the term objective being used a lot today. In a recent trip to Baxter State Park, we turned back above treeline because 30 mile per hour wind gusts and large boulders are a bad combination. So, Chaley says, I did not finish the New England 67 this year as planned, but it's critical to remember at all times of the year, the true objective of every hike is not the summit, but your safe return home. All experienced hikers can help by promoting this message. Joanne in Deerfield, also a similar thought. As a Southern transplant to New Hampshire, I fell in love with winter hiking. For me, the essential piece was an experienced hiking partner who never hesitated to support me when I said, I just don't have it today. After a long day, we also walked away from a Mount Adams summit when we saw a storm blowing in sooner than expected. My advice, Joanne says, when in doubt, shout it out. You have to be honest and communicate with your partner. Good life lesson too, Joanne says. Thank you, Joanne. And Spencer emails, I've been the subject of a rescue in the Tetons many years ago but not until reading Where You'll Find Me, that's your earlier book, uh, Ty, about Kate Matrasova, 
was I convinced to get a personal locator beacon. My wife says, thanks, Ty. On the topic of turning back, I am familiar with the problem. What does Ty say to overcome that trap? Spencer, thank you. And first of all, could you address the personal locator uh, beacon question that Spencer raises? Sure. Um, you know, technology's certainly playing a larger role in backcountry uh, efforts. And a personal locator beacon is one of a few different types of tools that hikers can rely on, um, you know, if they get into trouble. What I, what I will say, though, is that, you know, technology is fallible and that we have to we have to recognize the fact and have a contingency that, well, what if the, the beacon doesn't work or it gives right. a false signal? Do I have map and compass skills? Do I have a handheld GPS? You know, do I have backups for those kinds of um, events? On the topic of turning back, Spencer says, um, mm -hmm. what do you say to overcome that trap? And I like that Spencer used the word trap because that's a word you use too, Ty. There's a number of decision-making traps that people make that can get them into trouble. Yeah, it, it is a trap, and I, I'm glad he brought it up. Um, and it's, you know, you mentioned the Footprints in the Snow essay. Pam Bales, who was a rescuer for Pemi Valley Search and Rescue Team, would always say, you know, getting to the top or the summit is optional. Getting back to the car is not. But these traps um, can happen when, again, we set that goal or objective, the, the word I've used before, and we get fixated on it to the point where um, we, we get tunnel vision and we we're not paying attention to changes that are taking place either within us or around us. Um, and so my suggestion is that when we find ourselves in this position of, I want something, right? Whether it's a summit or a material object or whatever it is, you know, there's emotion that's often driving the want. And I think it's, it's really just taking a step back and trying to shift to, should I? And when we shift from I want to should I, we position ourselves really to, to increase or reset our situational awareness where, okay, I'm heading for the summit, but I'm gonna stop and I'm, how am I feeling? Am I hydrating? Am I, am I taking care of myself? Am I layering my clothing appropriately? What is the weather doing? You know, where's the sun at this point? Um, am I behind schedule, ahead of schedule? How are my teammates? It's it's just that continuous, again, presence that I talk about um, and, and just constant reevaluation. So if you get from I want to I sh to should I, I think, you know, that that can help head off these these traps that we find ourselves getting into. So say that again, Ty, getting to the summit is optional, but getting optional. back to the yeah, go ahead back to the car is not <laughs> and, and right. getting back to the car is not. Right. Yeah. Wise words and wise words as more people undoubtedly head into the whites this winter. What concerns do you have, Ty, given that, you know, it's pretty safe to say there'll be a lot of people out there this winter? There, there will be. And we saw evidence of that over the summer. Uh, I think the trails were uh, packed, for lack of a better term, particularly in Franconia Notch and, and over in the presidentials. And I think what you're likely to see is that um, people are looking again for that escape uh, to get away from the current reality that we've all find ourselves in. And they're, they're gonna be stretching their legs into the fourth season. You know, they're, you'll have three season hikers that are gonna start venturing out into the winter season. Um, you, they, we do see examples of 
people that don't really have hiking experience, but they they want to they want to go out and try mountaineering because they've seen it. Um, you know, it's extreme. And I think in talking with members of the search and rescue community in recent weeks, one of the concerns they have is given the pandemic and the impact it's going to have on ski area operations. Um, yes, they're still going to be running, but it's going to be different. And there's really the potential that that people are going to move more into backcountry skiing, right? which brings on a whole host of additional risks for people uh, and potentially for rescuers. Wow. All right. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we'll pick up on that and we'll take a lot more emails and calls. Our phone number here in the exchange is one 800 8926477 and our email is exchange at nhpr.org you can use facebook or twitter too that's great more in a moment This is The Exchange. I'm Laura Canoy. This hour, we're talking with author Ty Gagne about his new book, The Last Traverse, Tragedy and Resilience in the Winter Whites. Listeners, what experiences have you had hiking in any season where perhaps your judgment or that of those around you wasn't the best? And how did you hear this story of a winter hike that turned tragic? Our email is exchange at nhpr.org or give us a call 1-800- Eight nine two six four seven seven, And Ty, just before the break, you mentioned your discussions with New Hampshire search and rescue folks who are very worried about crowds going out into the back country in the winter who don't have the uh, experience that they perhaps should. For people who are unfamiliar with this search and rescue system, who are these teams? Um, because a lot of them, from what I understand, are volunteers. They are. It's so New Hampshire Fishing Game, which has uh, oversight of inland search and rescue in New Hampshire, has a highly trained advanced search and rescue team. It's approximately 13 members, and they're they're spread out throughout the state, but primarily in in the area of of the mountains. And then there are, there are a host of volunteer teams out there. Um, again, many of which are are situated, you know, southeast, west, and north of of the White Mountains, um, and they they really work together. And as you said. Those teams are all volunteer. Uh, there, there are school teachers, there are nurses, they are mountain guides, um, firefighters. They're, they're just remarkable people and, and selfless. And it's one of the other reasons I really wanted to talk about this in the book is just they're, they're not paid. Uh, they, don't, they don't wish to be. It's they're going out there and, and helping fellow hikers, recognizing that there's really a thin margin between the people they're rescuing and themselves. Well, yeah, and they are also a big part of this book. And speaking of rescuers, I do want to remind listeners that your essay, tie Footprints in the Snow, Lead to an Emotional Rescue, um, first published in the AMC's journal, is on our website today, nhpr.org slash exchange. That's about one of the female rescuers um, in this group who really, um, people have to read it. It's, it's an amazing story, and she really ended up saving a life and turning someone's life around. For this rescue in your book, Ty, just describe how massive it was and why it had to be so massive. Well, they didn't have an exact location of where they believed uh, James and Fred were going to be. And so the incident commander, based on his own experiences in rescuing on that, on that ridge, which he was very familiar with, and 
what he learned from past incident commanders that he trained under is that, you know, the, the idea is to, you really have to cover most of the major trails that lead up onto the ridgeline. And that, you know, that started from the northern most trail of the notch to really one of the more southern. And then on the backside of the ridge in Pemi, Pemi Wilderness. And so the idea is to deploy teams um, and have them move inward on these trails in hopes that you're cutting you're cutting off the hikers as they're bailing out or you're at least containing them if they attempt to, or you find signs of, um, of the hikers. And as, as Todd Bogardis, the incident commander said, you know, we're not looking for hikers, we're looking for signs of the hikers. And I think that that's a really important piece for people that are going out in the backcountry. Um, you know, that just they hikers leave these breadcrumbs, whether it's you know, a burnt map or a candy wrapper or something like that, a footprint. Um, there's just a whole host of things they they rely on to help them find people. Well, and this also gets to the planning. Um, these gentlemen did not tell anybody specifically where they were going. They said, we're going to go on a winter hike, you know, in the notch. Um, had rescuers known which trail they were taking, right, Ty? They might not have had to have deployed such a large number of people. Right, and, and I would like to add, there was also an air search by the New Hampshire Army National Guard, which I, I know we'll get into a little later. But yeah, the, there wasn't, um, I wouldn't say there was a firm or fixed itinerary that was left with anybody um, behind. And, but there were inferences that Fred and James were going to go do Franconia Ridge, but no one knew whether it was Saturday or Sunday. You know, and thankfully their, their coworkers and, and good friends um, connected the dots on Monday morning when they were supposed to be back at work and and at least got the search started. Well, and somebody who was involved in the search, right? His dad had actually seen them that day and that was a key clue, wasn't it, Ty? Oh, I saw them yeah, going up the front. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and these are the small, these are the stories within the, the larger story that you don't hear about, but he's a retired Manchester firefighter. He was just on... Um, just there to climb a little haystack up, up the Falling Waters Trail just as a training hike and just to keep his fitness up. And he also happens to be the father of what was then at the time a member of Mountain Rescue Service. And um, he hiked the trail. He encountered James and Fred a couple of times. And the next morning, as his son is driving to the rescue call, he calls to check in on his father because he wants to make sure it's not his dad because they you know, knew that there were, they were looking for two, two men. Oh, I see. And uh -huh. his father immediately answered the phone and said, oh, I saw them. And he was able to give uh, search and rescue personnel and the incident commander an, an idea of the point last seen, which is critically important in a search right. and rescue mission. Yeah, that's a title of one of the chapters, I think, point last seen. And then they don't have to be fanning out all over the place in terrible weather. They can be a little bit more focused. Let's take another call, right. Ty. This is Tracy in Newbury. Uh, go ahead, Tracy, you're on the air. Thanks for calling the exchange. Hi, good morning. I'm morning. calling basically to give a shout out to the AMC Outdoor Education Program. Um, I'm a middle school teacher and I have spent years and years hiking with middle schoolers in the white, um, generally with a guide from the outdoor program. And uh, the last time I did it was a presidential traverse in June, but we hit winter conditions, including, um, you know, we had a snowball fight, but then also on, on the, the final ridge had hail conditions. 
And wow. one of the things that, 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 out, that this uh, education program does so well is not only helping the students prepare what to hike, because nobody wants to carry a lot of weight when it's June, <laughs> and teaching them <laughs> about preparing. And then the difference between when, um, when we encourage students to kind of push through being uncomfortable for a great goal that's worth it, and bringing them into the decision of when is it no longer safe and we have to turn around. And, and so they just, I can't say enough about what a great job they do of, of introducing young people to that area in a way that is safe and rewarding both. Tracy, it's great to hear from you. And um, it's great that you're introducing young people to New Hampshire's beautiful outdoors. Any thoughts from that call uh, for you, Ty, that come up? Yes, uh, th you know, thanks, Tracy. A couple of things. One, I, I totally agree. The AMC has some excellent winter workshops. I would also highly recommend if people are trying to progress in their skills and technical competency that there are a number of expert guide services, particularly in the Mount Washington and, um, and Franconia area that are more than willing to go out there with you. I went out with a guide once. I was trying to build my skills in a particular area and it was just a really enriching experience. And then, you know, she made the other point about taking people to a level of discomfort. You know, yes, I, I am in risk management, but I, I, I also really believe that there are, there some degree of risk taking is, is beneficial, particularly when we're outside of our comfort zone in a progressive way and, and building skills and maybe with a mentor or another expert because that's where we develop confidence um, and experience and skill sets. So I, you know, I just don't kid myself that we had that we need to stay in this box uh, and and avoid everything. I, I don't think we can, and I don't think we should. It, I just think there's a way to do it. Alexis writes. She'd love to know some of the best resources for three season hikers like me who want to learn how to do some winter adventuring safely. And Alexis, thank you for writing. I'm guessing that's uh, a lot of listeners have that same question. Go ahead, Ty. Yeah, again, I think if you can find a mentor, somebody that you know and trust um, that is, that's willing to go out there with you in a, in a non-pressure kind of setting and, and help you grow your skills, or if you choose to take a workshop with the AMC, as I mentioned before, guide services, um, are also out there. I know the International Mountain Climbing School in North Conway um, has a mountaineering workshop that actually, that's what New Hampshire Fish and Game participates in when they're training uh, their new search and rescue personnel. So there's, yeah, a, and fish there's and, a ton fish and game has a lot. of yeah. There's a lot of lists about what to bring and what to do um, on the Fish and Game website on AMC and so forth. Alexis, thank you for writing. Uh, Chief Goldstein of the Franklin Police Department wrote in. He says, I've read Ty's first book and heard his presentation. His experiences lend themselves to my profession, law enforcement, and my passion, skydiving. I've had to make the decision, for example, not to jump for similar reasons expressed so far. And uh, Chief Goldstein, thank you for writing in. John emails, as a very experienced winter hiker, I can really relate to Ty's writing. I didn't think I would be as interested in the risk management and decision-making parts, but as soon as related them to my own group, they became riveting and vital. I was able to understand not only my own thinking out there in different conditions, but those of my companions too. After reading Where You'll Find Me, I gave a lecture on hiking safely to my Boy Scout troop and decided when I retire soon, I want to give back by volunteering for one of the search and rescue groups 
um, in the whites. That's great, John. Thank you for writing. Um, you know, one of the other aspects of this book that was eye-opening for me, Ty, is how complicated hypothermia is. And this is something, you know, I don't want to say we're going to see more of it, but we might see more of it as more people venture out into the White Mountains this winter. Just remind us, hypothermia is complex, right? It's not just you're cold and you need to warm up. It, it really is. It's, you know, it's called the silent killer in the backcountry. It's, it's probably, it's the really the leading cause of death for, for most um, in the White Mountains and particularly in the presidential range. And it, it is, it's, it's a very challenging thing to manage because it's a very slow cognitive decline as you get colder. Um, your, your body goes through this phase of vasoconstriction where as blood is returning to your heart from the outer extremities, it's, it's cold because we don't have a ton of insulation in our hands, arms, feet, and legs. And the heart doesn't like that. So the brain sends out a signal and our veins and our arteries start to constrict. And so blood flow is, starts to lessen in our outer extremities. One of the first places that takes place is in our frontal cortex of our brain, which is really the decision center of our brain. This is where it's, they call it the executive function portion of your brain. So with a lack of blood flow there, you start to see behaviors where people aren't taking care of themselves. We forget to hydrate. We don't add layers of clothing when we should. We may actually remove layers of clothing because we perceive ourselves as warm. Um, we, we shiver, which is involuntary exercise, which if as we burn through our glycogen stores, we, we stop shivering and then you know, we're really in trouble. But the, I think one of the problems with this is our frontal cortex will often lead us into trouble. And it's exactly the thing we need to get out of trouble. But when we're hypothermic, the frontal cortex is impaired. And so we see these situations that take place in the mountains where people do things that we judge and don't, we criticize and we don't understand, but people don't often don't know they're doing it. So it's just wow. really important to pay attention to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't appreciate that until I read the book that, you know, your brain is not making good decisions because you are hypothermic. So it's so easy to read these stories and go, gee, why didn't they do X, Y, Z? And that's why. I want to close out, Ty, with an email from Susan who says, I have been James Osborne's partner for the last 12 years. Um, again, just to remind listeners, James is the one in this pair who survived this hike. Susan says, I met him shortly after the hike, and through the years, James has shared many stories of that tragic day. I have to say that reading Ty's book has brought tears to my eyes. As I sit here and listen to your show, I feel the need to thank Ty for his non-judgmental approach his professionalism and his ability to make the reader feel and see the story. And Susan, it's really great to hear from you. And Ty Gagne, hard to believe we've run out of time. Thank you very much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. It was great to be with you. Ty Gagne is CEO of Primex. The book we talked about is called The Last Traverse. The other book that came up a lot in our conversation today is Where You'll Find Me, Risk, Decisions, and the Last Climb of Kate Matrasova. You'll find his essay, Footprints in the Snow, Lead to an Emotional Rescue, first published in the AMC Journal, on our website today at nhpr.org exchange. Today's program was produced by Exchange producer and news host Jessica Hunt. Thanks for being with us. This is The Exchange on NHPR.
The views expressed in this program are those of the individuals and not those of NHPR, its board of trustees, or its underwriters. If you liked what you heard, spread the word. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other listeners find us. And thanks.